I want to speak this morning on a, a teaching in the Bible, which uh, in Reformed theology has been called uh, Union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's not a phrase you'll see in the Bible, it's a theological summary of the teaching, mainly in the New Testament, of union with Christ. And I want to base most of uh, our thoughts this morning on 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So as I say this morning, all I can do is introduce this teaching to you because it is a very deep and profound teaching and we only have time to, in a very simple way, introduce it. In many ways it's beyond our comprehension anyway, um, beyond all human knowing. Paul described this biblical teaching as a great mystery, but I speak, he said, concerning Christ and the church. But God is so gracious to us, he knows that we have, uh, compared to him, very puny minds. And he in his word has given us some word pictures, some metaphors to enable us to at least approach some understanding of this teaching. Um, this mystical union between the Christian and God. In scripture this teaching is mainly presented in two phrases, or two phrases that are closely approximated to, in Christ and Christ in us. You'll find those phrases scattered through particularly the epistles of Paul. But as we'll see, the Lord Jesus also taught this same teaching. And as I say, there are various analogies in Scripture which help us to understand what this means. And of course we won't have time to look at any, more than one of them, in fact, this morning. But just to list them, we have the analogy in Scripture of the relationship between a husband and a wife as a picture of this union. There's the metaphor of the foundation cornerstone together with the other stones of a building. The Lord Jesus uses the example of a vine and the branches. Paul uses the head and the other members of the human body. The human body. And remarkably, the Lord Jesus even compares it to the unique union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In John 17, 21, he says that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Amazing that the Lord Jesus should compare the Trinity to the relationship that we have in him. But the analogy we're going to study this morning as a way in, as an approach, as it were, to this teaching is the analogy that Paul uses of the two Adams. The first Adam and the last Adam. 
also described in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 47 as the first man and the second man. And uh, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 contrast, compare and contrast Adam, the first Adam, and Christ, the second Adam. And using this analogy, it presents Adam and Christ as two representatives of their people. Humanity is described as either being in Adam and therefore being represented by Adam to God or as being in Christ and therefore being represented to God by Christ. And in addition the scriptures teach that what each head does determines the, de the destiny, the final destiny respectively for those who are in one or the other. And so the truth of the matter this morning, perhaps the most important thing that I will have to say, is that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There's no third option. And the consequences of being in Adam or the consequences of being in Christ are absolutely huge. Not just for this life but for all eternity. Oliver Cromwell had a chaplain, you all remember Oliver Cromwell? And his chaplain was a man called Thomas Goodwin. And most of the sermons that we have from recorded from Thomas Goodwin were preached in the House of Commons, House of Commons. I'm proud to come from a country where there is a record of a Puritan preaching sermons in the House of Commons. And he used an illustration of two giants standing before God. The two giants standing before God were Adam and Christ. And each giant, in his illustration, had a large belt around his waist. And the belt around each waist had tiny hooks. There were millions and billions of little tiny hooks on each belt. And everyone who has ever lived was hanging on either the belt of Adam, the giant Adam, or hanging on the belt of the giant Christ. And on Adam's belt hung those who were still dead in their sins. And on Christ's belt hung those who were justified by faith. And you see, although it's a rather strange illustration that Goodwin used, it gets to the point of the fact that we either hang on Adam's belt or we either hang on Christ's belt. In other words, we're either in, in Adam or we're in Christ. And God only deals with you and I through Adam or through Christ. He doesn't deal with us directly, not, not in a federal way or forensic way at least. 
because we are always represented to God, either by Adam or by Christ. And if you hang on Adam's belt, you share in this experience of sinful, fallen Adam, Adam, and your entire dealings with God are through him. But if you are hooked onto Christ's belt, all God's dealings with you are through Christ. And you know, when a person is saved, when, when they become a Christian, whatever phrase you want to use, there is a momentous transfer. God himself unhooks you from Adam's belt and hooks you onto Christ's belt. And then you have a different head. You have a different mediator. You have a new representative. You have passed from being in Adam to being in Christ. And thus being justified by faith. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to make only two points. The first point is the great contrast between the persons and the works of the first and the last Adam. The great contrast between the persons and the works of the first and the last Adam. And this is where we need to go back to the scripture a little bit. The Apostle here in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5 verses 12 to 21 draw out the great contrast between Adam and Christ. And of course this is done to demonstrate the vast superiority of Christ, the second Adam, or the second man, over the first Adam. And so... Perhaps the easiest verse to go to to understand this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, which says the first man, that's Adam, is of the earth, earthy. The second man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord from heaven. What a contrast there. You see, there was a time when Adam was not in existence at all. God, we read in Genesis, said, uh, let us make man in our image. There was a time when Adam did not exist. That is not true of the last Adam. That is not true of Christ. It says here that he is the Lord from heaven. In other words, there never was a time when the Lord Jesus Christ did not exist. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Christ is eternal. Adam was created. Christ eternally proceeds from the Father. He is begotten, but not created. So that he has an eternal generation. We can't understand it. We can hardly find words to describe it. But that's what the scripture teaches. 
Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Of course, people get confused by that phrase, the firstborn of every creature, and then they think, well, perhaps Christ was created. Perhaps he didn't always exist because it says he was the firstborn. But we need to remember that the firstborn of our whole creation is talking about the preeminence of Christ, his rank. The firstborn in Scripture often means is often talking about the importance, the rank of someone. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, is the head of the family. He's the firstborn. It doesn't mean he was born in that sense. It means he's preeminent over all that he has created. For by him, the following verse says, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. But what a contrast with the first Adam. He is of the earth, earthy. God took earth and fashioned the man. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. The Lord Jesus doesn't come up out of the earth, he comes down from heaven to the earth. Adam was made in the image and the likeness of God. A high position indeed. But the second Adam, the last Adam, is not merely in the image and likeness of God. Hebrews says he is the brightness of God's glory. The express image of his person. Adam, the first Adam, was created in the image of the last Adam. He is the very image itself. Adam was made a living soul. Yes, God breathed into his body and made him a living soul. But as we have read in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam, Christ, was made a quickening spirit. Jesus wasn't given life. He, was the, he is the giver of life. He is the one that breathes life into others. What a contrast. The other great contrast, it's not just the contrast between the person of Adam and Christ. The other great contrast is the superiority of the work of Christ over the work of of the first Adam. And this is where we need to um, have in mind at least to have our fingers in Romans 5, uh, 12 to 21. There's no time to exegete that properly this morning. But in essence, th those verses teach this. That the first Adam disobeyed God. Adam failed the test. He missed the mark and he forfeited the chance, the option of everlasting, glorious life. Adam broke the law. We've been studying about this in the Bible studies. 
And he became the enemy of God. He became a sinner. But the tragedy is that he didn't just make himself a sinner. He's made all of us sinners too. Because all his progeny, genetically, have become sinners because he sinned. By one man sin entered the world and so death came upon all men. That's the work of Adam. Thank you Adam. We haven't got a lot to thank you for. But that's his record. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father into the world to seek and to save that which was lost because, because of Adam's fall. All of humanity is lost and under the wrath and anger of God. And the second Adam, the last Adam, has work to do, had work to do. And the, the Lord Jesus Christ has a record. He has a work record. And what is his work record? Well, I can tell you in two words. Perfect obedience. Though tempted in all points like as we are, Satan tempted him in the wilderness, but not just in the wilderness, throughout his life. And yet not once, not for a nanosecond, did the Lord Jesus Christ fall, or did he fail, or did he yield to any of Satan's testings or temptations. Christ triumphed. Says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He was sinless. He was separate from sinners. He rendered a perfect obedience to the law of God and to his Father's will. He told people, I have come to do my Father's will. And he rendered a perfect obedience even unto death. Even the death of the cross. Well, it was wonderful just to take the Bible and, and read it and to admire the record, the work record of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's done all things well. Everything was perfect. And he kept the law for us. He kept the covenant of works so that we don't have to. We couldn't anyway. He's, he's rendered a perfect obedience. And the results, or the results, is a great contrast in the results of the work of Adam and the work of the second or last Adam. Adam's work rendered us, as I say, us unrighteous. We're all born in sin. We're all, by nature, the children of wrath, as others. That's what the first man did for us. But the second, or the last Adam, I should say, the Lord Jesus, he has made his people righteous. It says in Romans 5 verse 17, For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Adam brought us under judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ brings us into a place of righteousness. Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into the judgment but is passed from death unto life. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. There is therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has borne the punishment. The last Adam has borne the wrath of God on our behalf. He's taken us out through the judgment. He's passed through it for us. And therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're delivered from the penalties of a broken law. And they are very serious penalties. Delivered from the fear of judgment. Delivered from perdition. Delivered from hell itself. And so the urgent question that I have for each, each of us this morning, for any listening online, is this. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is a very practical question. Whose belt are you hooked onto? To use Goodwin's illustration. Who are you, are you united to? Are you in union with Adam or in union with Christ? The second point, heading if you like, I have is this. The headings are never very clever as you'll notice. The vital importance of being united to Christ. The vital importance of being united to Christ. John Calvin wrote these words in respect of union with Christ. He said, or he wrote, I should say, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. All that he suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Do you understand what that's what he's saying there? As long as Christ is external to us, all that he's done is, is no benefit to you or I. We must be in him and he must be in us. For all that he has achieved to be any, any value to us personally. In a way, we, we must possess him and he must possess us. We have to be united to, to Christ to receive his benefits. Often people don't get this and they, and they, they study and they're really expert in the Bible and in theology they never get to the point of understanding that they won't receive any of it themselves unless they're in Christ and Christ is in them. You see, I say often, we're not saved by, by, by being given a new brain. We're saved by being given a new heart in which Christ dwells. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ taught and is what the Apostle Paul taught. We have to be united to Christ. I just want to pick out just a few verses from 
from the most authoritative voice of all, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just to prove this point, and it'd be good if you looked at them with me, just to seal it in your minds. John 6, verse 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Dwelleth in me and I in him. That's union with Christ, dear friends. Do we know anything of that? And then there's John 15, verse 4. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. And then John 14, verses 19 and 20. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. And, and Paul talks about it with our text this morning. As in Adam, in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. He says it in many places we have time. But for example, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then Christ in us, he says in Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then finally, Romans 8.10. And if Christ be in you, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. A wonderful teaching, dear friends. We can't do it justice today, but only introduce it to you. But it's worth months and months of, of your study. If you study what the New Testament particularly says about union, union with Christ, you will see that the church is united, is in union with Christ in and at all points of Christ's work on our behalf. Christ is our representative, our covenant head, federal head, and whatever he has accomplished as our head, he shares with you and I if we are Christians. And therefore, in historical time, in history, in his saving acts, 
in the accomplishment of redemption through that series of redemptive actions that he took, somehow, mystically, in a way that we can't understand, we were in him. And so the New Testament teaches, and I'm just going to skip through this, that in some way beyond any, any, anything that I can understand, we were in Christ when he died, we were with him in his death, we were baptised into his death, Romans 6. We were in him in his resurrection, we were resurrected with Christ. We were in him when he rose from earth to heaven in his ascension. We have been raised with him. We're even in him in his heavenly session. In other words, his present rule and reign. We're seated in heavenly places in him. And our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we're even in him in the future, in the second coming, in the parousia. Because when he comes, Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. We're in him from beginning to end. This once for all accomplishment of salvation for the Christian is, in, in a mysterious way, we were in Christ. Things apart from the second coming, all achieved before you and I were even born. Historical events. But you know, the, the deep roots of, of our salvation go even further back than that. Our union with Christ goes back even before time was a thing. It goes back to the pre-creation counsels of God where according to Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 4 he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see, we, we were in Christ before the world was even made. In the councils, in the plannings, in the desires and purposes of God's heart, we were in Him. And we were in Him in history. When Christ came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, and everything He did, we were in Him. But you know, even that is not the full picture of union with Christ. You see, it's not just being in Christ. It's also Christ being in us. In other words, there has to be the application of salvation. There has to be the actual possession of salvation. In Reformed theology... And this is only this is only really as a way of understanding it. This isn't there's no distinction in reality, but in Reformed theology a distinction is made between the history of salvation, the historia salutis as it's known, and the order of salvation, the order salutis. In other words, the application of salvation. 
put more simply, and to borrow the title of a, of a very famous book by John Murray, there is redemption accomplished, and there is redemption applied. And you know, we're not in Christ until redemption is applied. Until Christ is in us. The Westminster Standards, question 30, asks this question. How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And answer 30 is this. The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. You see, it's through faith that we are saved. It is through faith that we are united to Christ in real time, in a time in your personal life in time and space. It's through faith that we are united to Christ. It says this in Ephesians 1.13 In whom ye also trusted, trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus said that all that the Father has given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You see, they have to come to him. I keep, I keep trying to say, it's no good just looking at this as a textbook. It has to become part of us, the truth of it. We have to be in Christ, and Christ needs to be in us. And Jesus says, if you come to me, I will never cast you away. And there has to be a moment in our lives to be a true Christian where we come to him by faith. Paul said in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? How can Christ dwell in our hearts? He says, by faith. Spirit wrought faith which the Holy Spirit works into us. So that when that effectual call comes, we respond to it, to it with faith, because we are given the gift of faith to respond to his call. We're coming now to the end. But I want before ending to... Uh, To press home this point. If you want Christ to represent you to God. If you want to be in Christ. And Christ to be in you. You have to exercise faith. Like the Lord Jesus says. Faith is not a complicated thing. It's coming to Jesus. It's trusting in him. Turning to him. Renouncing sin and choosing Christ. Admitting that you're a sinner. Giving up on any hope of fixing yourself up. And casting yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. That's all faith is. 
and it can be as weak and feeble and small as a mustard seed, Jesus said. You don't need a lot. Just a mustard seed of faith. And even that faith is provided for you by God, the Holy Spirit. You just need to be sincere, not proud, believing what Jesus says about himself and what he can do for sinners. If you come in that way, you will be saved. There's no question about it. The Lord Jesus Christ will not cast you away. And then there's an application for the Christian. We live out this present union with Christ through faith as well. We don't begin with faith and then maintain this union through our good works. Even spirit rule works. No, Paul says it's from faith to faith. We continue in union with Christ through faith. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I now live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So that when we as Christians desire holiness, when we face perplexing issues, we, perhaps we lack assurance, we exercise faith to remember that of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all the things we need, in other words, are in Christ and we exercise faith to access them. When we doubt our own salvation and begin to look at our own obedience as the ground of our salvation, we use faith to remember that he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are justified how? By faith. We continue to exercise faith to believe that despite our failings, our union with Christ is unbreakable and that we will endure until the very end. We will persevere because we're being kept in Christ and he is in us. Paul in Romans 8 says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from our representative. Nothing can take us off his belt. We're in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory, planned and purposed in eternity, accomplished in history, 
applied by the Spirit through the gift of faith worked into us, we cannot fall. We cannot be lost. And so today I ask for a final time. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Come to Christ today. Be in Christ and Christ will be in you. Amen.